0: You're now listening to a podcast of Revolution Church, located at 1702 6th Street in Portsmouth, Ohio. Revolution meets on Sunday evenings at 6 p.m. For more information, visit www.revolutionchurchohio.com or check out our Facebook page. All right, go ahead and open up your Bibles to Acts chapter 1. Yeah, Acts chapter 1, verse 8. And we're continuing our month-long break from the Gospel of Mark, and tonight we are going to be considering the topic of evangelism. Yeah, evangelism. That's a scary word for most Christians, isn't it? Right? Like, you, like you, can, you can see it sometimes. You guys hear that word, or we all hear that word, and immediately you probably felt a mixture of guilt and fear. That's usually what happens, right? I've seen interviews with people. How, how do you feel whenever you hear the word evangelism? I feel guilty, and I feel really scared. That's usually the two big responses. Uh, guilty because you're not evangelizing, and you feel fear because you're afraid of what people might say to you or what might happen should you evangelize someone. Um, it, but but I, I think the reason why that those two feelings, whenever we think about evangelism, is so common is because the lack of evangelism in the American church is an absolute epidemic. Uh, and the church in the West in general, but especially in America. Right? I recently read a statistic uh, or heard a statistic on the White Horse Inn podcast uh, that, that something like less than 20% of American churchgoers actively share their faith with unbelievers. That's less than 20% of the people who go to church regularly. Less than 20%, so one in five people, maybe. And I want to think it was something like 13 or 16%. But roughly one in five professing Christians who are active in their church actually share their faith with unbelievers. That is a huge problem. And that is not acceptable. Um, and I would assume that that statistic is pretty much accurate for nearly every single congregation, including ours. Right? I talk to you guys. I know how these things go in your life. And I bet if we were, we're not going to do this but if we were one of those churches where I asked you to raise your hand all the time and we're going to take count for this kind of thing, how many of you uh, shared the gospel with someone or evangelized someone within the last month, I don't know how many hands we'd see. My wager would be probably not many. So with that in mind, and I, by the way, I hope I don't sound like I'm scolding you. I'm just stating this as a fact. That is a travesty in the church that people don't evangelize, that people don't declare the gospel to unbelievers. So with that in mind, that this is an epidemic nationally and in our church as well. Uh, Pastor Stephen and I met last week and we decided that for the next two weeks it would be good for us to consider Jesus' call for his church to evangelize. Now, I've used that word a lot. What is evangelism? Evangelism is to declare the gospel, to declare what Jesus Christ has done to save sinners, to use words, and I'll say that again, to use words to communicate the message of salvation through Jesus Christ to sinners, or as you're going to read here in a minute, Acts chapter 1, verse 8, to give a witness to Jesus. So tonight, what we're going to do is we're going to look at the great commission that Jesus gave to his church in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. And in looking at that verse, we're going to give some thought to what it is that we are to give a witness to. So tonight, we're wanting to answer the question, what Are we supposed to declare when we evangelize? What or who are we supposed to give a witness to? And then next week we're going to answer the question, Lord willing, why should I evangelize? Why should we evangelize? But tonight is, what are we supposed to declare when we evangelize? That's the big thing I want us to look at. Uh, So to give you a little bit of a roadmap for this evening, uh, where we're going to go, first I'm going to give you guys some context. Uh, to Acts 1 verse 8 and give you a brief exposition of that verse. I want to break that verse down so you guys can see what exactly is there. Second, I want, to, I want us to see if this command given to the apostles is actually for us as well today. And uh, cat's out of the bag, it is. <laughs> it is. Uh, third, I want us to consider exactly what it is that we are to give a witness to. What are we supposed to say? Who are we supposed to give a witness to? And how are, we to such, how are we to do such an enormous and difficult task? And then lastly, I want us to move into some conclusions and applications uh, and hopefully encouragements from this text. Uh, but I want to be clear before we hop into this. My goal this evening is not to give you some kind of evangelism script. I don't think those things work right? Here's what you need to say every time in every situation. I'm not here to give you a script, write this down word for word and tell people this. Uh, But what I I want you to, what I want to do this evening is show you that the call to give witness to Jesus is for the whole church. And then I want to remind you what it is that we are to declare about him. And just show you all, you all know this stuff already. You know almost everything that I'm going to tell you this evening. Right? Especially if you're a member here. And if you don't know what you're supposed to declare when evangelizing, I should, you should probably fire me. Right? I'm just throwing that down there. If you've been a member in this church for very long, you should probably fire me. Um, but again, this stuff is simple, but we need the reminder often that it's our duty to give witness to Christ. But with all that said, let's go ahead and jump into our text this evening. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. These are the words of the Lord Jesus to his apostles. But you will receive power... When the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Again, that emphasis on, and you will be my witnesses. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord God Almighty, please open our hearts this evening to receive your word. Encourage us to do the work of witnessing that you have placed before us in this text. Help us to hide in our hearts what it is we are to declare about the Lord Jesus. God, I ask that you would convict us of our laziness and our apathy and our cowardice and embolden us by your Holy Spirit to go out and declare Christ to the world around us. We ask for this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. All right. So since we're jumping in on a verse where Jesus is in the middle of talking, it would probably be good for you guys to have some context so you know that I'm not just ripping this thing out of context and making it say what I want to say. Uh, So some context about what's going on in this passage. Uh, Jesus has already completed his work of salvation. Uh, He's already been crucified. He has paid for the sins of his people and been resurrected from the dead. Um, So that's all already happened. And our verse this evening comes just a few verses before Jesus ascends back into heaven. Um, and in this passage, Jesus is speaking directly to his apostles, minus the traitor Judas, who has hanged himself by this point. Uh, so he's speaking to the 11 remaining apostles directly. Now, there are other people around Jesus. You can get that if you read the entirety of Acts chapter 1 very carefully. There are more than just the 11 and Jesus there. Um, but Jesus is having this conversation between himself and the apostles. And as he's giving parting words to the apostles, they ask him, Lord, will you now at this time restore the kingdom to Israel, right? And the, and the apostles are of the opinion that since Jesus has been raised from the dead, that the end must be coming immediately, right? As in like perhaps that very day, like now is now the time that you're going to set up your kingdom. And not only that, not only are they expecting the end to be maybe even that very day, uh, but they think that Jesus is now going to be setting up an earthly kingdom in Israel, which Shows us that they have some wrong thinking about the kingdom of God and that the kingdom of God is primarily spiritual, right? Um, But Jesus turns to them, and even though they have some bad thinking on when the end is going to happen and what the kingdom of God looks like, Jesus turns to them and basically says, It's none of your business. (laughs) It's none of your business what the Father has determined. Right? It's not your business when I'm going to come and set up my kingdom. That is up to the Father to determine, and it's not for you to know. That's what he tells them in verse 7. It's not for you to know. But then Jesus goes on to tell them what they do need to know. Right? He goes on to tell them what their business is. Right? So he says, it's none of your business when I'm going to set up the kingdom in its fullness. It's none of your business when I'm going to do all of this stuff for the end. But this is your business. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So Jesus says that there are things that they don't need to know. But this is what they must know. That the Holy Spirit is going to come upon them very soon. That Jesus, after he ascends into heaven, is going to send them the promised Holy Spirit. And they're going to receive power from him. And then after that, they will be his witnesses. You will be my witnesses. The King James Version says, witnesses unto me, meaning witnesses about Jesus, specifically about him. And then after Jesus says these things, I believe it's verse 11, he's lifted up and a cloud takes him out of their sight and up into heaven. Now, in light of this context, one way that you could view verse 8 for our consideration this evening is that verse 8 is the final marching orders of Jesus for his church. The final marching orders of Jesus for his people. This is the last commandment that Jesus gives while on earth. You will be my witnesses. And as you all know, if you've ever had anyone you love dearly go away for a time and you don't know when you're going to see them again, their departing words are incredibly important. Aren't they? They're incredibly important. You, you, You... If they're communicating something to you before they go, they want this to stick with you because they don't know when they're going to see you again. And I'm not saying Jesus doesn't know. Obviously, he's God. Uh, But you get the idea. It's not a perfect analogy. But in this passage, it's as if Jesus is saying, know this, above everything else that you think that you're supposed to do, know this, the big picture mission that I give to you from now until I come is to be my witnesses. So brothers and sisters, this is the Great Commission. Right? Often we think of the Great Commission as Matthew 28 or Luke 24, and then that's also, the Great Commission is there. But it's right here for us in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. This, you will be my witnesses, is the one great job that the Lord Jesus left his people to do. To tell other people about him. Or to sound like a Puritan, to propagate the gospel about him. But what is A witness. Like, what does Jesus mean by, you will be my witnesses? Simply put, a witness tells what he knows. That's what a witness does. So, like, think about a courtroom. That's, that's what we're thinking about in this verse. Think about a courtroom. The witness stands before the court and recounts what they have seen and what they have heard. They bear witness to what has happened, and they tell the truth to the best of their ability. That's a witness. And how does a witness witness? with words, with words. I want you guys to know this, with words. Witnesses always use words, right? Unless they're mute and then they use sign language, which is words, right? It's just another way of communicating words. They speak truth about what has taken place so that others can know and believe the truth as well. That's a witness. And I wanted to say that because sometimes people think that they are giving a witness to Jesus by how they live. And that's how that they're supposed to give a witness. And look, there's some truth in that. Please don't misunderstand me. We, we definitely can give a witness to the saving power of Jesus by how we live our lives. We really can. We proclaim that Christ can free us from sin and then our lives should match that, right? So we can give a witness in some way to Jesus by how we love people, forgive, how we're generous, how we act kindly, how we help those in need, how we treat our spouse, all kinds of ways. Right? We can give a witness to Jesus and how we live. But while that is true and good, what's in view in this verse is someone verbally giving a witness about what they know has taken place. Again, that falsely attributed quote to St. Francis of Assisi, preach the gospel and if necessary use words. That's just really dumb and unbiblical. right? Just keeping it real with you guys. And he didn't say that. Look it up. He didn't say it. <laughs> He wouldn't have said it. Anyway. But what Jesus says his apostles are to be are his witnesses. So they are to verbally give a witness to all that they have seen and all that they have heard Jesus do and say. And they're very much able to do this, aren't they? They've been with Jesus for three years. They've been with him since his baptism. They heard the voice from heaven speak. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. They saw the transfiguration where Jesus' face shines as bright as the sun and his clothes become wider than anyone on earth could ever bleach them. And they hear a voice from heaven. This is my Son. Listen to him. They saw him live in perfect righteousness. They saw him crucified for sinners. They saw him resurrected from the dead. And they see him ascend to heaven in this passage with the promise that he will return to judge the world. Jesus intends for his apostles to tell people what they know about him, right? And this verse actually sets the stage for the whole book of Acts, right? That's what you see is after this, starting in chapter two, boom, they begin to do this work. So Jesus tells his apostles they are to be his witnesses. And he also tells his apostles where he expects them to give witness to him. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the earth. So they're to start out in the city of Jerusalem, and the region of Judea, preaching to the Jewish people. And then they're to go out to the Samaritans, which is a different ethnic group. And then they're to go out to the ends of the earth. So they're to start locally and ever expand their witness to Jesus. And they're to go to the nations. Again, everywhere. There is no place excluded in the phrase, to the end of the earth. This is why we have global missions as the people of God. They are to bear witness to Jesus everywhere and to people of all nations and ethnicities. No one is to be excluded because Jesus desires the whole world to know about him. We also see in this verse that Jesus tells them how they're going to accomplish this mission. The first part of the verse, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses. To put it simply, Jesus gives them a promise that He is going to send the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is going to give them power to do the work. The Holy Spirit's going to give them supernatural power, the kind of power that it's going to take for them to be able to complete, or rather to undertake, I should say, such a huge mission to evangelize the world, to see sinners converted to Christ. He says, I'm going to send my spirit to give you power to do the work. So he gives them a promise. The spirit's going to come upon them and take up residence in them and aid them in the mission. He's going to give them, and hold on to this because this will come back later for us. He's going to give them boldness to proclaim Christ. He's going to give them strength to continue to bear witness to Jesus even in the face of persecution. He's going to make their preaching effective. In the hearts of the elect. Jesus promises nothing less than the power of almighty God himself to aid his witnesses. And because of that power and help, they're going to be successful in their mission. So you can actually think about the argument of the verse if you want to put it that way. Jesus says, you will receive power when the spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses. So they will be witnesses to Jesus and be effective to do the work, particularly because the Holy Spirit is going to give them power to do so and make their preaching effective in the hearts of the people of God. So Jesus gives them a promise of power and then gives the apostles their marching orders for life or until he returns. And then if you turn over to Acts 2, which you should just read the whole book of Acts, but beginning in Acts 2, we see this great commission beginning to be fulfilled. Right, the Holy Spirit comes upon the 120 Christians gathered together in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. If you read chapter 2, verse 11, you see that as they're speaking in tongues, they begin to tell what Luke calls the mighty works of God. And I don't believe that these are the vague and general works of providence that God does, but specifically the mighty works of God that he has done through Jesus Christ. They begin to give witness to Jesus. All the believers gathered there. And then in chapter 2, verse 14, the Apostle Peter stands with the other apostles behind him, and he begins to give a sermon that bears witness to the Lord Jesus. So the commission and promise given in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, begins to see its fulfillment in Acts chapter 2, and for the rest of the book of Acts. But, and I'll get into this in a minute, the Great Commission was not completely fulfilled by the apostles, was it? It wasn't. Jesus has not yet returned, so the mission abides. And while the apostles did go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and beyond, they did not make it to the end of the earth in their lives, did they? They didn't make it to North America. They didn't make it to South America. They made it pretty far for what they could do with the remaining time of their lives. They didn't complete the commission. So that brings us to our next question. Is this commission for us? Is it for us? Now, generally speaking, Christians just assume that the Great Commission applies to every believer. And why is that? Because we tend to think that the Bible is always speaking directly to us whenever we read, right? That's why people apply passages in Jeremiah to themselves whenever they are not Jews in exile, (laughs) right? We always assume that the Bible is directly speaking to us, and we kind of don't pay attention to the context a lot, right? But with that said, the assumption's correct. This Great Commission does have some application to you, but I want to prove it. I want to prove it to you this evening. Uh, And I want to prove it because some people believe that we don't need to evangelize because Jesus gave this mission directly to the apostles and not us. So some people will say, I don't need to do that. And if anyone keeps the commission going, then it's the apostles handed it down to the ministers, so only Stephen and I need to evangelize people. right? Some people legitimately will make that argument right? Uh, But that's not true. But I want to prove to you that this commission does have a bearing on you. So let's think about it for a second. We do see directly in this passage, and in every passage where Jesus gives the great commission, Jesus commands this specifically to the apostles. There's no denying that at all. He gives it to the 11 apostles who were there with him. But again, as we just said, that clearly the apostles did not finish the work. So we may rightly infer that the commission remains relevant. It remains binding. In Matthew twenty-eight twenty, 20, right, the most famous passage for the Great Commission, Jesus says that it's to last until when? The end of the age. I am with you always until the end of the age, even until the end of the, end of the age. That's Christ's return. So since the apostles died before the end of the age, it's clear that while Christ gave the command directly to the apostles, he could not have intended it to be exclusively for the apostles. You get what I'm saying? He gave it directly to them, but he could not have intended it to be exclusively for them. Now let's keep going. Right here. Focus. I got you. Right? You'll be all right. You're not dumb. They expect more out of you in public schools. You'll be here with me. You're cool. Right? Paul tells us that the apostles... Are the foundation of the church in Ephesians 2.20, right? That the, the apostles laid the foundation for the church with Christ Jesus as its chief cornerstone. So this command to be witnesses to Jesus that was given to the apostles must necessarily continue through the institution that they were the foundation of. Right? That's the argument. It must have continued through what? The church. Corporately. So it is the mission of the church body as a whole. To bear witness to Jesus. So this great commission is not given to the individual. It's not given to you as an individual by yourself. It is given to the church. To be carried out in the context of the whole church. So what does that have to do with you as an individual? Like I said, it does have an application. And you may say, well, you're going a long way. I want to prove it to you. If it's given to the church then... What does this have to do with you as an individual? You're part of the church. (laughs) Really simple. You're part of the church. The mission is given to the church, and you are a member of the church. That means that you are, in some regard, to take part in this mission. That means, and let me encourage you to this, bearing witness to Jesus is not just for an elite group of super-Christians. Isn't that what we tend to think? That's for the people who, they read the apologetics books, and they... That's for the extroverts, right? As if being introverted removes you from part of the burden of the work of the church. That's, that's dumb, right? But we think this is for super Christians, right? No, but it's for the church. The apostles laid the foundation and passed the commission on to the entity of the church. It's not only the job of the elders in your church to proclaim Christ to people. It's your job, right? Listen to the apostle Peter's words to the church as a whole in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. But you are a chosen race. A royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. According to Peter, the apostle, we are all priests to God in some regard. That the church is a royal priesthood. And that's drawing on the Old Testament concept of priest. This is, if you want to write this down, feel really smart. This is where we get the doctrine of the priesthood of all believers. Right? That doctrine came out of the Reformation. So every single one of you, in some regard, is a priest to God. Is what Peter just said. A royal priesthood, the whole church. What does that mean? That means, one, you offer spiritual sacrifices to God, right? Romans 12. Right? You give your life as a living sacrifice to God in your obedience. And you have an obligation then, as a priest, to participate in the ministry of the church. You should be a minister in some regard ministering the word of God. That was one of the functions of the Old Testament priesthood. And you are all Christian. If you're a Christian, you are, in some regard, a priest to proclaim God to people, to minister the word. So while there are people in the church who have an official function to minister the word, like me and Steve and Lord willing Dave, it is all of our responsibility as the church to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. It is all of our job as a body to give witness to Jesus. The job has given, been given to the church, the church of which you, Christian, are a member and are a priest in some capacity. So all that is to say, I know you may say, you took the long way to get there. Yeah, I wanted to prove it to you. All that is to say, this job does belong to you. This job is yours, Christian. Christian. Bearing witness to Jesus is part of your duty as one of the redeemed of God. This is part of why the church exists. Right? Have, you ever, have you ever considered that? Jesus wants his people to bear witness to him. He proclaimed himself on earth, did he not? He did the work of redemption. He made promises and called people to himself. And now we, as his church, continue his work. We take part in his work as his witnesses. If Jesus did not intend us to do this job, then he would take us out of the world as soon as we were converted, would he not? Why, why else would he leave us here? Because he has work for us to do. He, he, he desires us to be a witness to him so that other people can come to know him and take up the mission as members of his body. So yes, this is your job because you're a member of the church. It is your sacred obligation and privilege as a member of his church. That water is delicious. But maybe you're asking yourself, so let's go on. I like to anticipate people arguing with me, right? So I just argue with myself in the study and then answer my own questions. Maybe you're asking, how can I give a witness to Jesus if I wasn't there? Right? How can I give a witness to Jesus if I wasn't there? The apostles could, could give a witness because they saw They were there, they heard, but we can't do that because we have not heard or seen what Jesus did. Listen, I don't know if any of you are thinking that. I know that someone probably has at one point or another, or you may at some point in the future just because you don't want to evangelize, so you might make up a a bad argument for why you shouldn't. Uh, Listen, if you think that, that you can't give a witness to Jesus because you weren't there personally, I have a question for you. How low of a view of Scripture do you have? How low is your view of the Word of God? In the Bible, you have the God-given and God-inspired record of what happened. Sincerely, like, I think sometimes we don't think about it that way. You have a God-inspired, God-given record of what happened. In other words, you hold in your hand when you pick up your Bible the apostolic witness. That's one of the things that we call the New Testament as the apostolic witness. You know exactly who Jesus is. You know exactly what he did because God had it recorded for you. So we do indeed continue to give the exact same witness that the apostles gave as we bear witness to what the word says. So we are very much able to be witnesses to Jesus as we look to his infallible word to tell others about him. We literally give the same testimony as the apostles gave because we have the Bible. I want to encourage you in that. Who am I to tell them? You have the the apostolic witness in your hand. Tell them what the apostles said. Tell them what the apostles saw. So again, this is not for an elite class of Christians. You have the word of God. You have the testimony in your hand. You have experienced the grace of God for yourself. Christian, you believe exactly what the apostles believed. You are qualified to be a witness to Jesus. And Jesus, in commissioning his apostle, commissioned the church, and by extension, you, to do the work. No excuses. Let's continue. So, this is our job. We are to be witnesses. I hope that I've argued that clearly enough for you. But w- what are we to say? What do you say? What are we to bear witness about? As I said earlier, Jesus says, You will be my witnesses. So we give a witness to Christ himself, his person, his work, his promises, his threatenings, his terms of reconciliation. Jesus is to be the theme of our witness. So I just want to be clear before we go any further, because sometimes we get this wrong. Giving a witness to Jesus is not giving your personal testimony of conversion. That's not bearing witness to Jesus. That might be part of it, but that cannot be all of it. Bearing witness to Jesus is not just living a good and godly life in front of other people. That must be part of it, but that cannot be all of it. Because let's be honest, if you're waiting for one of your coworkers to say, why do you live so differently? One of you will die first before that happens. That just doesn't happen. Bearing witness to Jesus is not just inviting people to church. That's a good thing. I hope at the minimum we can all do that. But that cannot be all of it. That's not even close to bearing witness to Jesus. What is in view in our text this evening is giving witness to facts about Jesus. Maybe you've never thought about it that way. What are we to do if we give a witness? These are the facts of who he is and what has happened That's what it means to bear witness to Jesus, as if you were in a courtroom, giving testimony, bearing witness to the unbeliever you're speaking to. So we declare the truth about the Lord Jesus Christ, the truth about Christ. But what are we to say? I have seven core things that I believe make up giving a witness about Jesus, and I promise you they are not all insanely long, because that would be ridiculous. I know I've been up here for a half hour already. But I have seven core things that I believe make up giving a witness about Jesus. And I gather all of these things from the preaching of the apostles in the book of Acts, the letters of the apostles, and the words of our Lord Jesus himself in the Gospels. Right? And if you're wondering, well, what do you mean you give a witness to Jesus by looking at what the apostles said? You'll see this when we get back to Mark here in a few weeks. Jesus spoke through his apostles, To be an apostle means you are a sent messenger of Jesus with the full authority of Jesus. So when an apostle spoke or wrote in their official capacity as apostle, Jesus is speaking in that moment. So this is all bearing a witness to Jesus. So this is all coming from the New Testament. And I want to be clear. This is not meant to be a script, what I'm getting ready to go through. I don't want to give you a script. Rather, I want this to be a reminder of what our proclamation is to be. These are the core things that we are to declare. And again, as I said in the introduction, you guys know these things. You know this stuff already. But I pray that you would take this reminder to heart and be encouraged by the simplicity of our witness. It's simple what we tell people. It's not always easy to tell them. But the message itself is simple. And I also hope that this just encourages you to hear the gospel. God help us if we ever get bored of it. But the first thing that we're to give a witness to is who Jesus is. And I'm gonna simplify some of my notes here. We are to give a witness to his person. Who is Jesus? And if I could sum it up, he is God. That's what we declare to people. First things first, who am I talking about? Jesus. Who is Jesus? He is God. He made you. John, in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, says, Apart from him, nothing was made that was made. He made everything. Paul says in Colossians 1, He holds everything together by His will. He made you. He is God, the second person of the Holy Trinity, the Son of God. He's the visible image of the invisible God. He is, as we confess together, He is Lord. He is Lord. He is the King of Kings. There is none higher than Him. He is the Supreme One. He's the Creator God. All that is to say, He is God. What Accept Him or not. This must be the mentality that we have when we give witness to Jesus. Accept him or not, unbeliever, he is God. He is still your God. He is still your maker and sustainer. You only have life because of him. Accept it or reject it, this is who he is. I'm telling you the facts. And because of who he is, you as a creature owe him all reverence and respect and worship and love. You owe him everything that you have because of who he is. You exist by his pleasure. You owe him everything. So you are morally obligated to submit to him and whatever he tells you. And you are to submit to him not begrudgingly, but in love because he is lovely. He is God. And he is the only God. And there is none beside him. We begin by giving witness to the truth of who Jesus Christ is in his divine nature. He's the theme of our witness, so we speak to who he is. Second, we give a witness to what Jesus says about humanity. God help us, we can't forget this one. We give witness to what Jesus says about humanity. John 8:34, our Lord says, "Everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin." And it's it's clear Paul tells us in Romans 1, it's clear by your own consciences and the word of God that all have sinned. The Lord Jesus declares that all human beings are in sin and slaves to it. In John chapter 3, the Lord Jesus declares that people love darkness and hate light. What does that to say? When we're dealing with the unbeliever and bearing witness to Jesus, we tell them, our Lord tells me that not only are you a sinner, but you love sin and you hate Righteousness. You are a sinner, and it's not accidental whoopsie-daisy, I tried but I, I failed. No, you love the darkness, and you hate to be exposed. You're a wretch, you're a sinner, and you might have different ways of going about declaring that to them, but that must come across. The Apostle John in John 3 declares that the wrath of God remains upon those who do not obey Jesus. What does it mean remains? That means it's already under the, already on them from birth. It's not that it's going to come. They're already under the wrath of God because they're sinners. Paul tells us in Romans 8, again, the inspired words of the apostle, mankind is hostile to God in their natural state. That we're naturally enemies of God and we refuse to obey him. And because of all this, both Jesus and the apostle Paul say the wrath of God is coming. The wrath of God abides on the sinner. That wrath that ends in their eternal perdition. That ends in them going to hell. Listen, we have to declare to people that they are sinners if we're going to bear witness to who Jesus is. That is the most uncomfortable part. Not just, hey, there are sinners out there, but hey, I'm bearing witness that Jesus says you are a sinner. And that the wrath of God uh, God abides on you personally. We declare that they deserve the eternal wrath of God because of their sin. We declare that they have a great need of forgiveness and that they need to be set free from sin and its penalty by Jesus. Listen to me. When we give witness to Christ, if we don't bear witness to this truth, then everything else you're going to say is worthless. If you don't bear witness To the sinfulness of man and the coming wrath of God, the good news is not going to matter to the unbeliever. How is it good news if you don't know the bad news first? It's not. So third, we give witness now to what Jesus has done. First, this is who Jesus is. Two, this is who Jesus says you are. Third, we give witness to what Jesus has done. That the Son of God took a human body to himself and became a human being. That truly God, he became truly man, was born of a virgin, and lived among us. There's a reason why we have you guys confess these things all the time. Truly God, he became truly man and dwelt among us. And that as a human being, he lived in perfect obedience to God. Never sinning, never failing to perfectly please God. And after that sinless life, the Lord Jesus offered himself as a sacrifice for sinners. Because the justice of God demands that someone pay for sin. But the Son of God willingly laid down his life to pay for that sin. And we bear witness that Jesus Christ was crucified in place of his people. That he was crucified for sinners. That God the Father poured out all of his anger and wrath for the sins of his people on Jesus on the cross. That Jesus suffered the punishment that we deserve as a substitute. And we declare that the wrath of God was satisfied through the atoning death of Christ. And we have proof of that because on the third day after his death, God raised him from the dead. And in that resurrection, Jesus was vindicated. And all of his claims to be God, all of his claims that he would die to save sinners, everything he ever said was proven to be true in that resurrection. We bear witness to the life, death, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus in place of sinners. We declare that his work is the only way that sinners can be reconciled to God. God demands justice to be done against human beings so the Lord Jesus, the son of God, becomes a human so that justice might be satisfied in him in the place of sinners. We bear witness to what he's done. Fourth, we bear witness to what Jesus offers to sinners. We like this part. We bear witness to what Jesus offers to sinners. That Jesus offers the forgiveness of sins to sinners. And he beckons sinners to come and he will give them rest. That he'll give the forgiveness of sins to those who do not deserve it. That instead of the eternal wrath of God in hell, Christ offers salvation and eternal life to sinners. That he offers life to those who deserve death. His life for theirs. His perfection for their sin. We declare the offer of salvation through Christ. That's what he offers. Fifth We bear witness to the threatenings of Jesus. We tend to not do this one. Do we not? Have you ever ever proclaimed an abstract gospel to someone? God says He'll send sinners to hell if they don't trust in Jesus, and you leave it there like it's an abstract principle, but you don't tell that person the threatenings of Jesus? Do you understand the difference? That we bear witness that to this individual that we are bearing witness to Christ too. That those who refuse him, if you refuse him, if you refuse to turn from your sins and submit to him as Lord, if you do not believe in him, if you do not accept him, you will perish. We bear witness to the threatenings of Christ. Jesus in Luke 13.3 says, unless you repent, you likewise will perish. In John 8, 24, Jesus says, I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am He, you will die in your sins. That's a threat from Jesus. You could call it a promise, really. He's not messing around. He's serious in His threatenings. Those who do not repent and trust in Christ, who do not receive the forgiveness of their sins, will die in their sins and perish under the wrath of God in hell forever. As awkward as it might be, especially in 2019 America where no one is wrong and we're not supposed to offend and everyone's supposed to feel like God accepts them in their sins and all of that, we must drive home the threatenings of Jesus as well as we drive home the offer of grace and salvation. We must present both. Sixth, we bear witness to what Jesus will do in the future that just as certainly as he came bodily the first time he will come again and that when he comes as we confess he will come in glory and in judgment to judge both the living and the dead in John chapter 5 verse 22 Jesus says for the father judges no one but has given all judgment to the son he says i'm going to judge you all jesus will Revelation twenty two twelve, the Lord says, Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. He says, I am going to judge the world. And in this judgment of Jesus, he will condemn to the lake of fire all those who did not submit to him as Lord. All those who did not receive him. But he will indeed save his people. He will have mercy and save those who believed on him and submitted to him. We bear witness to the reality of a coming day of judgment where every man will stand before this Jesus. When you declare the gospel to someone, do you remind them of that reality? There will be a day where you will give an account for your life to the one that you are currently scorning. We remind them of the reality of judgment, that he will punish the wicked and save his own. And then lastly, we bear witness to Jesus' terms of reconciliation. We declare what people must do to be saved. And it is clear what Jesus' terms are. Believe on him, and you will be saved. How sweet it is to be able to declare this. (laughs) Believe on him. Trust his promise to save you, and you will be saved period. Repentance is a fruit of faith. The repentance will come after the faith. So we tell them, believe on him and you will be saved. Believe on him and he will change you. Believe on him and he'll grant you repentance. Acts 16.31, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. John 5.24, Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Jesus and his apostles make clear that to be saved from your sins and the penalty for them, you believe on Christ. You must trust him alone. That's Christ's terms of reconciliation. Believe on him and be saved. To be saved, you forsake any form of self-righteousness. We declare to the people we're bearing witness to that you come to Jesus admitting that you deserve his wrath and that no amount of moral reformation can save you, no amount of good works can save you, no amount of being sorry can save you, but you come to Christ saying, only you can save me. And I trust that you will. And with all the authority of Christ, we can say, our Lord says, I will We bear witness that only Jesus can save, and that only faith in him can bring the forgiveness of sins, and that all men need the Savior. We bear witness to these things who Jesus is, what he says about mankind, what he has done to save sinners, what he offers sinners, what he threatens the impenitent, what he's going to do in the future, and what his terms of reconciliation are. That's what we declare. Those seven things. And notice that all of this is about who? Him. It's all about Him. Our witness is to Him. What He has done. Who He is. And what He demands from sinners. If we do anything less than this, then we are not giving an accurate witness to the Lord Jesus Christ. And brothers and sisters, we must proclaim these things to a lost and dying world people will perish we'll talk about that more next week but we must continue this great commission that Jesus gave to his church we have to continue this apostolic witness to the Lord Jesus it is our sacred duty as his people and like the apostles we are to be witnesses to Jesus to everyone everywhere Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria to the end of the earth Everyone, everywhere. No breaks. This is your life's goal. You see the opportunity. You take it. You build friendships for the sake of the gospel. We proclaim this message to people in our city, in our neighborhood, in our workplace, in our family, in our state, in our nation, in our world. We proclaim this. Colossians one twenty eight. Him we proclaim, warning Everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. We proclaim to all who will listen. And how are we to do this work? Let me encourage you. The same way the apostles did. And you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Christian, ever since the day of Pentecost, every single believer has possessed the fullness of the power of the Spirit of God. Paul tells us that we've been blessed with All spiritual blessings in Christ Jesus. He tells us that in Ephesians 1. You've received the Holy Spirit, Christian. The same exact Holy Spirit that dwelled in the apostles dwells in you. Not just them, but all of you. I was pointing at them, but all of you. He dwells in you. He dwells in you to empower you to do the work of witnessing. Witnessing. To do the work of declaring the gospel to sinners. The Spirit may not manifest himself in the sign gifts anymore like he did on the day of Pentecost. But rest assured, he dwells in you to empower you and give you strength and boldness to proclaim this message, Christian. To be bold in the face of fear. He empowers you to speak the right words at the right time. The Holy Spirit empowers our words to convert the rebel hearts of sinners according to the will and plan of God. By the power of the Spirit of God, we are energized and able to do the work, just like the apostles. So when you think you can't do the work, when you find yourself afraid to do the work, when you feel like you don't have the strength to do the work, you should know that it's the Spirit of God who lives in you, who empowers you to do the work. And you need to lean into that promise of power. And submit yourself to the, in obedience to the command of Christ. He's not left you with no ability is what I want to encourage you with. He's left you with nothing less than the almighty power of God dwelling in you by the Holy Spirit. You have the ability. He's given you every tool and every advantage that you might give a witness. That should encourage you. we to be his witnesses. Now, I have a few concluding thoughts that I want to challenge you and encourage you with. The first is this. Being a witness does not mean converting people. It doesn't. I, I want to encourage you in this. It does not mean converting people. That is our goal. That is what we strive for. right? We're fishers of men, and we want to, as it were, fill the boat with souls for Christ. right? That is what we want to do. That's what we want to see happen. We plead with men on behalf of Jesus Christ. Like Paul says, I believe it's in 2 Corinthians, we are ambassadors for Christ, making an appeal On God's behalf that you be reconciled to him. That's what we do. We plead with men. We learn to defend the faith. We try and tear down every vain argument against the faith. We try to persuade all men to come to Christ and be saved. But nevertheless, giving a witness is our work. The conversion of souls is the work of God. Be encouraged that God does not ask you to do the impossible. God does not ask you to change the hearts of rebel sinners. You can't. You can't do that. He doesn't ask you to take out their stony hearts and give them hearts of flesh. You can't. He doesn't ask you to give spiritual life to spiritually dead people. You can't do that. That's his work. That's his sovereign work of regeneration and conversion. But the work he's commissioned us for is the work of evangelism. The work of declaring Christ. And that we can do by the power of the Spirit in us. So be encouraged. He has not commanded you to do the impossible. You can bear witness. Second, we'll get into this more next week. Christian, I want to encourage you that it is your sacred obligation to do this. Christ does not call every individual person in the world to bear witness to him. He calls his church. You're a member of his church. How privileged we are to be part of his church. How privileged we are that Christ says, I want you sinners to take part in my great work of redemption throughout the world. It is your sacred privilege and right and obligation to do the work. And how dare we abandon what is our right and privilege as the children of God? We have no right to scorn and ignore such a weighty task given to us by our King, our Lord, and our God. But lastly, getting down to brass tacks here, uh, and I'll be brief. Will you go? Will you do it? Will you do it? That's really what it comes down to, brothers and sisters. Like reading a thousand books on evangelism and going to a, a bunch of seminars and watching you know, good theologians talk about evangelism. You can do all that and that stuff is good. You should study evangelism. You should watch people like Ray Comfort on YouTube do it. That's good stuff. But what it comes down to is, will you? Like, take it from me. Like, that's what it comes down to. Is the moment of truth, are you going to pull the trigger and bear witness to this sinner about Jesus? Or are you going to just let it go? That's what it comes down to. Will you do it? Will you bear witness to Jesus? Will you at least try? He's equipped you. You know the message. You have power from the Holy Spirit. Will you do it? Or, I'm being honest, will you give a lame excuse? Because I've heard most of them and they're lame. Will you give a lame excuse? Really an excuse that reveals your doubt in the promise of power and help from God to do the work. Or will you believe him? And try. Christian, surely the Lord Jesus is worth it. Surely he's worthy bearing witness to. Think about who he is. Surely he's worthy of our effort. Think about what he has done for you. Surely he is worthy of our effort. Surely he's worthy giving a witness to. There's no one greater. Who else would you rather bear witness about? There's no one more worthy of your energy and your effort. There's never been a greater work done, and there has never been a greater Savior. He is worthy. So do the work that he's laid before you. Let's pray. Our Father and God, we thank you for this word that you've given to us this evening. God, I pray that you would give us courage. Really, honestly, Lord, it's not so much courage that we need, but God, give us faith in your promise that your Holy Spirit will empower us to do the work. We know the message. And Lord, for those who are fuzzy on the message but are Christians, God, they have resources. I pray, God, that you would help us to use the resources that are available to us to learn the message of the gospel inside out. But God, above all, grant us an increase of faith that we might believe your great promise of help to those who engage in the work. Help us, God. Forgive us for our cowardice. Forgive us for our apathy and our laziness. God, help us to behold Christ, to see that we're privileged to be part of his church, to see that this work is for us. And to see, Lord, that you don't command us to do the impossible. And that you promise us every aid and help that we need. Help us, God, to be witnesses to your son. We pray this in his name. Amen.